What would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? And I was trying to take it seriously. Every question I thought about, I'm like, I would be a comedian. How cool would that be? But all of a sudden, the voice of reason popped up on my shoulder. He said, but you're not funny. True. But that wasn't the question. The question wasn't whether I was funny or not. It was what would I dare to dream? And I believe, because it took me a while to figure out, why did comedian pop up? Once I figured out, I went back to that eight-year-old kid at the holiday table. He, his dream, eight years old, was still inside me. Thank God I was at such a low place or I would have never tried it. Quiet, shy, naive, introvert, unfunny. I, I didn't want to live my life with the regret of wondering what if. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig. And I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, seven hatters. In this episode, we speak with Darren LaCroix and dive deep into hats one, four, and seven, the soul, the entrepreneur, and the seeker as we ask ourselves the question, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? Darren is literally the only one in the world. He is currently the only speaker who is a certified speaking professional, an accredited speaker, and a world champion of public speaking. Not to mention a very successful fellow entrepreneur. You know, it is known that you are only as good as your training and a great coach finds and helps you discover the greatness already inside of you. So if you want to become a dynamic, inspiring, and persuasive communicator, maybe learn the secrets of storytelling, own the stage in your next important presentation, or just find the humor hidden inside you waiting to come out. If so, then let's welcome Darren to the seven hats. Darren, Welcome to the seven hats. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, after interviewing Patricia Fripp, (laughs) she suggested that I seek out this guy, Darren LaCroix. And I don't know if you know this, but this is not the first time that your name has come up on my radar. When I was working with Michael Haig, your name also came up. So I was like, who is this Darren LaCroix guy? So I looked you up. And after 30 seconds of your work, I was hooked. And then I reached out to have you on the seven hats. So what is it about Darren? The seven hatters might be asking. What about him fascinated me so much? Well, his story, Darren's story, it's a true life underdog story that will resonate with so many of the seven hatters. You know, he calls his journey from chump to champ. I love that. And I can't wait to dig deeper. So where do we start, you might ask? Well, we start with the chump part. So Darren, where were you born and what was your childhood like? 
Uh, I was born in Auburn, Massachusetts. Uh, it was one of the suburbs of Boston, about an hour away. Um, Catholic family, mom and dad were awesome. Just kind. It was like growing up with June and Ward Cleaver. Those of you who are old enough to remember the TV show Leave It to Beaver is kind of the, the the perfect household, medium income, lower medium income. Uh, but I was quiet and shy, and I did not have any confidence. And for me, one of the key points that we'll get into is I remember being at a holiday function. It was Thanksgiving, and I was at the kids' table. And I just was mesmerized by my cousin and brother who were always funny, having everybody laugh. And I just thought, how amazing is that, that they, just with what they say and how they say it, they can bring joy to the room. And I remember just being in awe of that. In fact, it was a Polish uh, Thanksgiving celebration. I'm at the kids' table. I'm about eight years old. And my brother and cousin were recapping Saturday Night Live skits and Steve Martin jokes. I have these two twin aunts, and they laugh in harmony. (laughs) Like you can't not laugh when they laugh. So my brother and cousin have everybody going and everybody just in laughter. I remember standing up and throwing out a punchline and I hushed my whole family. And as an eight year old kid, I slid back into my seat. So embarrassed and thought I will never, ever try to be funny again. It's just, it, it wasn't me. It wasn't who I am. And so, of course, you know, siblings got relentlessly teased and, and that was it. I shut down even more. So for many years, I put that aside, that dream of making people laugh aside. And I was like, oh, what am I good at? What do I like? What am I passionate about? So I, I chose the business path and went to four years of business school uh, at a small college. It used to be Bryant College. Now it's Bryant University in Smithfield, Rhode Island. What did your parents do? So my dad worked for a local uh, electric company. Uh, He was in the army previous to that, lost a lot of his hearing. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom and she made wedding cakes. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. So great question. Nobody's ever kind of asked about that, but my mom made wedding cakes. So to this day, the thought of wedding cake turns my stomach. Because she, she was, my mom was really good at baking and really good at decorating. But guess what we had for dessert all week? It's like she made them on the weekend and then she carved them and we would get the scraps. So I would have wedding cake with hot fudge on it, wedding cake with strawberries, wedding cake with blueberries. Ugh. So the trauma begins with wedding cake yep. as an early child. I can see that. And so siblings? Uh, yeah, I was the youngest. I was the spoiled baby. And I have an older brother and older sister. And one other interesting fact that I think helped create the path that I'm on is I was born with a club foot. If you're not familiar with that, it means one foot is crooked. And I had to get operated on where I was very young. I had to wear a cast for a year and a half of my life. Now, I don't remember. So it didn't traumatize me consciously. Um, But I had to get two separate shoes, different size shoes growing up. So I got teased because I had these dorky shoes from Stride Right. So going along with not uh, bullied by some of the kids in the neighborhood, but really uh, just teased relentlessly. I had the Forrest Gump braces. Uh, if you remember those from the movie, and I my did. mom, I love my mom, not a fashion person. She used to uh, dress me in this ugly red corduroy cape 
Sherlock Holmes cape with a matching hat. And so I got teased as Darren, Darren, the Red Baron. Oh my God. Well, let's forget about your story on this podcast. Let's just talk about our moms. <laughs> I remember my mom going to Stride Ride, taking me and buying me these uh, striped sweaters, okay, that were brown and, and yellow and the sneakers that were five bucks that no one knew anything about. And I'm in Queens, New York, okay, and everybody's wearing Nike and yeah. it, all of it's these brand names. Preaching. Oh my God, it was horrible. Anyway, I don't want to take the entire story. Okay, so now your parents, you know, they're hardworking entrepreneurs. What are they expecting of you? Well, they actually weren't entrepreneurs. Uh, my mom was doing the wedding cakes. It was kind of like a side hobby business, but my dad worked for the local electric company. So when my sister was the first one in our whole family, all my cousins to go to college. So it was expected that I go to college, work for a company, get a good job, get a gold watch. And so when I told her I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I remember her saying, whoa, no, your grandfather tried that. He's a nice guy. People took advantage of him. That's not for you. And so I took that to heart and I went, you know, the, the business school route. And then you probably know some of my story. I went out for the American dream. I bought a Subway sandwich franchise. Yep. It's the only way I could get a loan right out of college because I had no credibility. But I could get a loan because I was going with a success system. And about a year and a half later, they opened another Subway right down the road from me, took all the profits off the top. I had to get a day job in order to pay my employees and not default on my loan. So I discovered I love business. I also discovered I did not love that business. I, had, I, I thought business was business. No, not the case. Well, let's, let's delve into it. So you are a world champion of public speaking. We'll get to that in a second, which is a huge deal. And in your winning speech to the NSA, which is the National Speakers Association, you fell on your face, literally fell on your face. And you stayed there for a bit. And then you asked everybody in the audience if they've ever fell on their face. You know, you live the American dream. You were able to start a business, but you fell on your face like so many entrepreneurs, myself included. So Darren, tell us about that experience. I know it was kind of broadly discussed. Hey, I got into Subway and I failed. But what did you learn about yourself? What really happened in that process that made you become aware of the issues that you're going to start facing along life journey? Yeah. The, the biggest one was because of the, I believe because of the club foot, my mom coddled me and fought all my battles for me because Catholic, mm. she felt bad. So she overcompensated, which is why I had low self-esteem because mom fought all my fights. So now even though subway was a traumatic experience, it's what I needed to be mm. who I am today. So getting a day job, owning the franchise, I was working, no exaggeration, 9 a.m. to 1 a.m., seven days a week. So when I was at my day job, I had staff there and then I would go and close out. And legally, I for subway legality, I had to be open at <laughs> one in the morning. So but here's what I learned. And I got some great advice from uh, a family member who said, don't declare bankruptcy, mm. because even though. You can declare bankruptcy and it wipes out all your debt. There'll always be that question, have you ever declared bankruptcy? So it doesn't yes. go away after seven years. And it was great advice. And I said, you know what? 
uh, at the beginning, so this is me, victim boy. Uh, at the beginning, uh, they were supposed to put a traffic light right in front of where the store is. So it was a high volume. That traffic light would have changed everything. But I was speculating that that would go in. And based on the landlord and the town and whatever, it, it didn't go in until 20 years later. But Oh, well. Uh, so I blame the landlord. I blame the lawyer that I hired. By the way, the lawyer said, said, don't do this because they could set up another one. But I ignored it. I chose the yeah. franchise. I chose location. So everything I was upset at, I was being a victim. I was blaming everyone. I heard a, a great story by Jim Rohn. Do you know who Jim Rohn is? One of my top three, maybe mentors, I think. I mean, I wish I met him, but yeah, incredible. Yeah. I mean, incredible guy. I heard him yes. tell a story. And for those of you who don't know, Jim Rohn was Tony Robbins's mentor. Correct. Very different from uh, Tony, but great style, great wisdom. And he told a story, he said his mentor asked him to write down a list of every reason yes. he wasn't not, he wasn't successful. So he wrote down a list. He said, bring it to me the next day. And his, men his mentors uh, reading it, reading goes, one problem with this, Jim, your name ain't on it. <laughs> and yes, it I woke that. me up because I realized I chose the franchise. I chose the location. I chose to ignore the advice from the lawyer. And so it's the first time I sucked it up, Buttercup, and I took full responsibility. I needed that. Working the 9 a.m. to 1 a.m., well, that set me up for working hard. It set me up for total responsibility. It set me up for driving two and a half hours to Portland, Maine to do stand-up comedy for free. So I needed that failure to set up what I love to do now. So you took a $60,000 debt and you actually did pretty good with it, didn't you? That was pretty good, <laughs> I doubled right? it. <laughs> you doubled it. I love that. Yeah. If, if for, those, for those who don't know this reference, watch Darren's videos and you'll get, you'll get that, that, uh, that joke and it was fantastic. So what happened? So now it's, it's failed. What are you thinking to yourself? Like, are you just, hey, I'm a total loser and what next? What do I want to do now? Yeah, I think like you kind of mentioned this early on when we were prepping, it's like the truth, you know, I'm a big fan of the truth. Like <laughs> a few times I've failed and that was one of the biggest ones, but I, you know, I was contemplating suicide. I'm like, this mm. is, you know, why, like why go on? I obviously, uh, <laughs> you may not know this, but subway at that time had a 98% success rate. Wow. I had to really screw up to be in that 2%. Now, technically, wow. it was successful because I was able to sell the business at a loss. So I was sold the business at a loss. So technically, it was still a store. So it wasn't a failure in their mind. Now, for me, it was the greatest blessing ever to sell it as a loss because I just I, I couldn't handle it. You know, if you look yeah. at pictures of me back then, my eyes are sunk in my head. I just, mm. you know, I, it was not a healthy place. So my buddy saw how low I was. And when I did sell it at a loss, I took a job just to have a job to pay off my, because I had a business debt, yeah, no of course. business to pay it off. Yeah. I sold it at a loss, but I, my name was still in the note. And I remember my, my, the advice I got from my family members said, don't declare bankruptcy. So I'm like, okay, I dug this hole. I'm going to dig myself out of it, however long it takes. And my buddy saw how low I was, and he gave me this motivational tape of a man named Brian Tracy. So yep. I'm, uh, I, I got a day job at Bose Corporation, the stereo speaker company, because I just needed something. And one of my buddies worked there, so he hooked me up with a job. 
And so I just needed a job. So I was a salesperson, even though I had a college degree, selling the Bose Wave radio. So I'm driving to Bose and I'm listening to the tape of Brian Tracy. Uh, for those of you younger who don't know what a tape is, it's, it's a physical MP3 <laughs> that we used to put in our cars. We'll put, a, we'll put a picture in the show notes, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm driving down, listening to the tape, and he asked a question. He said, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? And I, I was trying to take it seriously. Every question I thought about, it, I'm like, I would be a comedian. How cool would that be? But all of a sudden, the voice of reason popped up on my shoulder. He said, but you're not funny. True. <laughs> but that wasn't the question. The question yes. wasn't whether I was funny or not. It was what would I dare to dream? And I believe, because it took me a while to figure out, why did comedian pop up? Once I figured out, I went back to that eight-year-old kid at the holiday table. Right. Yep. He, his dream, eight years old, was still inside me. And so yes. thank God I was at such a low place or I would have never tried it. Quiet, shy, naive, introvert, unfunny. I said, yep. but here's the cool part. I, I didn't want to live my life with the regret of wondering what if. Yep. I mean, I was at such a low point. If I bomb and these strangers never, you know, don't laugh. So what? You know, I can't live with the regret, like for all of us, we can't live with the regret wondering what if. I want to just, cause we have a very similar path too, because I too failed in my first business and I too hit rock bottom and had to find a job. And my friend gave me the name of some Israeli limo owner. And I was driving a limo for $10 an hour and could have went for bankruptcy and didn't. So very similar path in that sense. But you know what Brian also said, because I think Brian's also a very big inspiration for me as well as Tony Robbins, you got to take chances. But what Brian also said, he said, a journey of a thousand miles that begins with a single step, the hardest step is that first step, right? So for you saying, hey, I'm going to be a comedian, right? Brilliant idea, but you're not funny, but you need to prove something or to yourself, you have this inner dream. Did you fall on your face again? Tell us about that first step, right? So you made that decision. It's going to be, you know, your first comedy club, which we can get to in a second. But what was that first step like and what courage did it take for you to get there? Well, when I told my friends and family I was going to try this once, it wasn't a big dream. It was try it once, one time. When I told them, they compared me to Seinfeld someone who's just starting to someone at the top of his profession. That's not fair. There's no yeah. way that's fair. But everyone just thinks who, you know, people who don't know what it takes to become a comedian, it's easy to judge. You might've heard the old line, you know, those who can do those who can't teach by George Bernard Shaw. I say those yes. who can't do critique. Oh yes. Those sure. who can't do critique. It's easy to be that armchair, anything. So I said, you know what? Let me ask a comedian. Duh. You know, if you want to do something, <laughs> ask the person who's in the arena, as uh, Teddy Roosevelt said, the man in the arena. Yes. Let me ask the man in the arena. So I worked up the courage. I had never been in a comedy show before, never been in a comedy club. So I worked up the courage, shy, quiet, introvert guy. And I'm sitting in the back of the room and the headliner seemed quite like a nice, like a good guy. He seemed approachable. So I worked up the courage and I walked up. His name is Chris McGuire. He's still a writer in LA, in Hollywood. 
And I walked up to him. I said, hi, my name is Darren. I want to try this. What do I need to do? And he asked me a question. He said, are you funny? I said, no. <laughs> nope. He said, good. I'm like, good. What do you mean good? And he went on to explain that, you know, people who are naturally funny, people who are those class clowns, he said, they can't handle that first step because they have this expectation. He said, it's one thing to be funny around your friends. It's a different skill set to be funny on command in front of a group of strangers. And he said, that skill set can be learned. What? I know. He handed me an ounce of hope, and that was all I needed. He said two things. Number one, go to an open mic night. Watch other people just starting out. Duh. Now I'm comparing myself to someone else who's starting out. He said, number two, get the book. Book? There's a book about stand-up comedy? Well, of course, there's books about everything, but I wasn't thinking that way. Now, there's a lot of books, but when a guy who is where I wanted to be says, get this book— Judy Carter, stand-up comedy, the book. When he says, get this book, you just go and get it. And he realized that one thing that, that gets in the way of anybody who wants to learn anything is ego. Hmm. He could yep. see I had no ego. I was sponge. I say, be a sponge. Be open and eager and listen to the people who've accomplished what you want to accomplish. So a couple of days later, real quick, a couple of days later, I go to Fenway, right outside of Fenway Park in Boston, a little club called Stitches. And open mic night. This is only a second time in a club. You can feel the sticky floor, smell the stale beer. I thought, this is cool. And I watched people go up for their first time. And they were horrible. And I thought, I could do that. <laughs> it actually inspired me because I was comparing myself to someone else who's starting out. So if it wasn't for that, I probably would have never done it. So I went to Stitches every Sunday for two months. Uh, I did the book. I w did the exercises. I created my little act. And I went, it was April 26, 1992. I always remember I brought some of my friends with me because my whole life I've chickened out of everything, you know, mm -hmm. until I did the subway thing. That was the first big thing I ever did. So I, I told my friends, I said, I'm going up tonight. I don't care how bad it is. If I'm scared, I said, you make sure I go up there. Like if I kick, I scream, I cry. Make me go up there because I'm never doing this again. So I go up and I'm, I'm so scared and nervous. And I'm telling this joke about Dr. Robert Goddard, who launched the first liquid fuel rocket in history in my hometown. It only went 41 feet high, the very first rocket launch. So I'm just making light of all the New England towns who George Washington slept here. The Revolutionary War started here. So I'm just making light of it's the New England thing. Every town has their claim to fame. So I'm just making light of that. I said, you know, but my town, of course, we have the, the event that changed the world. And I said, you know, Dr. Goddard's rocket took off and it went vertically. <laughs> and if you're not, if you're just listening and not watching, I yeah. horizontal with my arm and I just, I reacted and I said, ah, shoot. And that's not the word I used that night, but everyone laughed. And I'm looking around, I'm like, why are you laughing? That's not where you're supposed to laugh, but I'll take it. That feels pretty good. Wow. And here's the key, I think. I was walking off stage. Everyone else thought I bombed because it was not a good set. I got one laugh. And this other comedian's kind of consoling me, puts his arm around me. He's <laughs> like, don't worry, man. It's just your first time. And I remember thinking, don't worry. It's my first time. Did you see what I did? 
I got a laugh. I am the king of comedy. In that five minutes of time, I had one thing that worked. If I could get rid of everything that didn't and figure out how to reproduce the one thing that did work, I can do this. I made that moment. I'm all in. I'm getting every mentor, take every class, get every book. I'm going to figure this out. I don't care how long it takes. So everybody has that first exhilarating moment, that first high, right? That they never forget and they always try to chase it, but it never comes after that. When was that first high? Was that that first laugh or did that come later? Oh, no, that that was the first laugh was it. Uh, The culmination of the dream. So I started in stand up comedy and I realized after several years that uh, being in comedy clubs six or seven nights a week wasn't who I was. Yeah. So I'm thankful for that. I don't believe I had the courage to do that. But when I, when I, you know, my comedy mentor said the one habit. So for everyone, wherever you're trying to get, ask people who are successful, what's the one habit I, love that. I needed to create? And they said stage time. Every day you, you don't get on stage is a day that you don't grow. What? Don't I have to be good when I go up? They said, no, no, no. You have to go up to get good. And at the beginning, when you're horrible, nobody wants to give you stage time. There's only so many open mic nights. So I'm in Boston. There's a hundred wannabe comedians and six open mic nights in the whole city. And they're on different nights. So all the hundred wannabes are going to the different clubs. So uh, when I was sitting at my desk at Bose, I was still at Bose at that point. This newsletter came across my desk about this thing called Toastmasters. I'm like, what's that? I start reading. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Here's a place I could get stage time during the day. Comedy clubs are only open at night. I could fail twice a day. Woohoo! And so I saw the value of Toastmasters. I walked in and these people are conditioned to clap no matter how bad you are. No matter what. (laughs) And, And I was like, that's awesome. You know, I came from the comedy clubs. If you're not really funny, they don't even laugh. Never mind clap. And there's nothing worse. I'd rather have silence than pity applause. It's like, oh, yeah, nice. Well done, sir. And so when I found the value of Toastmasters as a place to make mistakes, uh, I immediately joined four Toastmaster clubs. And so for several years, I was doing speaking and comedy. And then I kind of let go of the comedy in 1998 because I realized that's just not who I am. It doesn't resonate. I'd rather inspire than just make people laugh in a comedy club. It's just more who I am. So I kind of switched yeah. lanes and focused on the speaking. I don't think you gave up comedy at all. You're a fucking funny guy. So, you're kind. But, it, it, but listen, if you're funny and you add value, that's your lasting impression, right? So let's get back to the Toastmasters. You're one of, you want to quadruple your failure rate. And 99% of the people in the world avoid pain, like failure, like the plague. It's a survival mechanism, you know, that we have probably imprinted in our reptilian brain. So my question is, how did you do it? How and why did you endure all that pain for all these years? Because initially, if you're bombing and bombing and then, you know, comedy is not working, then you go in and quadruple your your failure rate with Toastmasters and you know you're getting pity laughs. I mean, it's like it's got to fuck with your brain a little bit. Like, so what how did you do it and why did you do it? Well, a couple things. You you need to surround yourself with the right mentors. So the people I took classes with became my mentors, and I would literally follow them around. 
If I couldn't get stage time, I was sitting listening to them. And when, you know, they told me any day you don't get on stage is a day that you don't grow. So they said, look, find a way. And so going back to being thankful for this opportunity and what I endured at Subway, I was like, okay, let me, I got to be creative. Creativity is one of the most powerful ways for the underdog to get there. And so like, for example, my high school buddies, I would tell them I would drive two and a half hours. If I couldn't get stage time in Boston, but I could in Portland, Maine, I would drive two and a half hours for free to go on stage for five minutes and then drive back and go to my day job the next morning. My high school buddies told me I was stupid. Now I get to fly all over the world. I've spoken in 44 international cities, every state in the country. Now I get to do what I love to do. Now my same high school buddies look at me and they say I'm lucky. So apparently you can go from stupid to lucky to lucky. And that's the way it always works. Keep going. You're on the right path, you know, but you got to think of who's saying it and where is their, where is their perspective coming from? If my mentors said it, okay, that's different. But somebody who's not been there and not done that, they don't know. We listen to the wrong people. I believe well-meaning adults trained the dream out of us when we were growing up. So for me, it was stage time, stage time, stage time. So the thing that uh, kept me going too is, you know, the movie Rudy, Mm -hmm. you know, the ultimate one of my favorites underdog story that came out in 93. My standup started in 92. I clung on to that character and he would get hit. I have a Rudy poster signed by the real Rudy in my office, because that story is what I clung to. And then also, what's that that thing in front of you constantly on your phone, in front of you on your desk that reminds you what you're trying to accomplish? So I had three quotes over my desk. Um, one of them, two of them I remember, the other one, uh, not so much, but one of them was by Anonymous, the mighty oak is just the nut that held its ground. Love that. And then there was one by Vincent van Gogh. He said, if there's a voice inside you that says you're not a painter, then by all means paint and that voice Mm. will be silenced. So I just converted it. If there's a voice and tell you you're not funny, then by all means make people laugh and the voice will be silenced. And so I had those constant reminders. I'm smiling and dialing, doing my job, but I had those reminders. And every time I would get a laugh, You know, people in my family still told me I wasn't funny and some people still don't. I don't care. But I did back then. I tried like, la, la, la. I tried not to listen. But one of my comedy mentors uh, or humor mentors, his name is Tim Gard. He said, if they laugh, it's funny. It doesn't matter what anybody else says, you know, because your friends look at you through a filter. So it truly was Every time I would get a sincere laugh, it it would reignite my addiction, if you will. But then later on, when I found speaking and inspiration, it was that aha in the eyes of the audience when I could see the light bulb go on. So I went from wanting ha-has to wanting ahas. Oh, I love that. And Jim Rohn also said, uh, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And I think think that's that's exactly where where you... um, where your journey led. So let's talk about speaking. You're passionate about the following statement. Boring loses business, mm. right? Of which I'm also very passionate about. And 
I don't know if you know who Peter Drucker is. Of course. But Peter Drucker once said, because the purpose of a business is to create a customer, the business enterprise has two and only two basic functions, right? Marketing and innovation. The marketing and innovation produces results. All the rest are just going to be costs. And marketing, though, is the distinguishing unique function of the business, right? It is one of my favorite business quotes because it's so true. You can have a great product and still fail, fail miserably. Mm -hmm. And many do, myself included. And that's because their marketing sucked. Mine did. And the story is such an integral part of marketing because you can tell the story about the product, the company, and the service. And I agree with you, anyone can tell a story. But you go a step further and ask, is your story unforgettable, right? So I ask you, what's the story behind that story? What happened in your life that helped you craft and learn these principles? And then what did you learn? Perhaps you can share the five-step structure with us, or at least an overview of it, so that the seven hatters can become unforgettable storytellers as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a great book that I highly recommend called Building Your Story Brand by Donald Miller. It's the mm -hmm. only book, marketing or non-marketing, that I've gone through on Audible over 12 times. And wow. it's just phenomenal. But I really learned great storytelling from my mentor. His name is Mark Brown. He was a world champion. He's my co-host on my podcast, Unforgettable Presentations. Well, when he showed me how to create a story. So I had been telling stories. I've been a speaker for nine years, if you include stand-up. So I thought I knew what I was doing. And I remember I wrote out the first version of my championship speech and I handed it to Mark Brown. And I was like so excited. If you don't know Mark, he stands about six foot two. He's got a heart of gold. He's a native of Jamaica. And he's got this beautiful booming laugh, like the guy from the 7-Up commercial. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. And I remember I wrote out, so I had 77 days before the world championship and I had to create a brand new speech. So I wrote out the new speech. I took his advice. But I didn't want to send it to him ahead of time. I wanted to see the joy on his face <laughs> when he read version 1.0. So I drove two and a half hours now south to New York where he was. And I remember standing in this little corporate setting. You could smell the new carpet. And it was just this little corporate theater. It was just three of us, me and my two coaches. And I handed Mark the greatest speech in the history of Toastmasters. I swear you could hear choirs of angels. <laughs> I handed it to Mark. Mark looked at the speech. <sighs> oh, Darren, we have some work to do. <laughs> what? I did everything he told me to do. I wrote the greatest speech that I could write from the level I was at. But one of the keys that he taught me was I was telling stories wrong. So some quick structure things. Uh, we don't want to sometimes there's the, the founder story as to why the business started, but then there's also a customer story. So one of the things that I learned from Mark was number one, we need to know like a day in the life of what a customer before they met you, what they were feeling and thinking, you know, what were they going through? And here's the key that I didn't understand. I used to tell my stories in narration. Narration mm. is past tense. I'm telling you about my story. What Mark got me to do was bring the, the audience to the moment when the story's happening. So telling that. it present tense, and here was the key, dialogue. 
dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. You want to tell better stories quicker. Um, you have to hear the characters talk with the emotions behind them. So for example, when I tell the story in version 1.0 that I handed Mark, I tell a story of going home to tell my parents I wanted to be a comedian. So I was nervous. I was excited. I went home and I told my parents that I wanted to be a comedian and they were speechless. They didn't know what to say. <laughs> okay. That's narration. That's telling you about it. What Mark got me to do is bring the audience into the scene. And so it turned into, so I went home. Mom, dad, I want to be a comedian. Silence. Crickets. Ouch. Ouch. Like they, they didn't know what to say. So here you have three characters. Here, the biggest thing in storytelling is we need to see an emotional shift in at least one character. If there's no emotional shift in one character, there is no yeah. story. So here I am. Now, there's three characters in that story, and we don't even hear from two of them. It's just mm. me. So going in excited, enthusiastic to tell them my dream. Mom, Dad, I want to be a comedian. And then on stage, if you watch it, it's on YouTube. Just search Darren LaCroix winning speech. Mom, Dad, I want to be a comedian. And then my face drops. Yeah. So I go from excited to that. Mm-hmm. If you're telling a story, reactions tell the story. Most people yep. don't, they, they skim over the reaction. Well, the reaction is where the audience feels the shift. And if you have Michael, if you listen to the Michael uh, Haig podca- podcast of Seven Hats, if he didn't talk about it, he taught me the purpose of story is to elicit emotion. For sure. You know, and that's the best thing I learned after winning the world championship because I got it now. I did it then, but I understand it now. So how mm-hmm. can you get the character to shift emotion if we don't feel emotion, if we don't show emotion, if we don't express emotion? So we need the before they met your company, and then we need the after the company, your company helped them. So now we need what's that confirmation that your process, your service solved the problem. So you can think of it in a quick structure. Where were they before? Then the aha came, your company, your product, your service. Then they were in a whole different place. So we need to hear the emotion. Um, You know, I had one of my, uh, just to give a quick example, one of my students who came and had a big talk keynote coming up and she was frustrated and she had never given a keynote before. This was her big paid keynote. And she called me up and she said, Darren, I, I just don't know what to do. I'm so frustrated here. I, 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 what do I do? I have all these content. I have these ideas, but I don't know how to put it together. I said, Elizabeth, go through our program, create your keynote. You're one of our students. You have access to it. We show you step-by-step how to create your speech. And so she, she normally had like two weeks to work on it. And she only called me two days beforehand. And so she was freaking out. And about a week after her presentation, she called me up and she said, oh, thank you so much. I nailed it. <laughs> so here's this frustrated person. Didn't know what to do. 
So what I'm trying to do is get my potential customer to relate. They want to put together an unforgettable presentation, but how do I do it? What, what order do I put them? What do I put in this speech? So I want them to relate to the character beforehand. And then, you know, it's the old, when Harry met Sally, I'll have what she's having. Yeah. <laughs> so now the end result has to be what your customer wants. Yes. I nailed it. They loved me. Okay. So, and then in the middle was the, the step-by-step process we had, which was the solution to her problem. But I need to know, I can't just give the solution in my story. I need to give the result of the solution. And that's where I think a lot of business owners miss all of those elements, myself included, until I was enlightened by Mark Brown and then Michael Haig. So Mark Brown, Michael Haig, fantastic individuals, huge in their industry. But there's another one, Patricia Fripp, and you worked with her as well. Isn't she like a one? She's one of the most wonderful, charismatic people I've ever met. Yeah, she's helped me not only be a better speaker, but be a better person and be a better business owner. She's amazing. What did she teach you? What what did you learn from her? What what's like the one thing that you that you can relay back that you learned from her? Well, I started stand up in 92 and I met her in 2001, ironically, when I was delivering my world championship contest. She was the keynote speaker at that convention. So she spoke and she showed her Fripp speech model. So by the way, she and I and Mark are putting together another book called Deliver Unforgettable Presentations, and it's based on her speech model. So I knew delivery. I I was passionate and animated, but what I didn't understand was structure. Hmm. And she taught me the key structure because good structure gives the audience clarity And it gives me confidence. So putting together a seven-minute speech, that's one thing. But talking for 45 minutes or an hour, I didn't know how to do that. I remember sitting in the audience when she was delivering her keynote speech, and she put up a visual of her speech model. And I saw it. It was just like, again, the choirs of angels. I was like, now (laughs) I get it. Now I get it. We, We confuse our audience. And as We've all heard in sales, a confused mind doesn't buy. Doesn't buy, well, yes. A confused mind doesn't listen either. Yeah. They, if, they, if you lose them, they're done. They're going to start thinking about what they got to do after your presentation. So, And when I say presentation, that could be a one-on-one conversation with a potential customer. So there you go. You know, I'm going to ask you something I've asked Michael Haig, and I, I'd love to hear your, your take on it. So we discussed that Michael Haig said that the job of a story is to elicit emotion. But with so many speakers out there and so much marketing noise, right, we can tell, you know, can we tell a no-frill story to be successful these days? Or do we have to have this, you know, Daniel Rudy Rudiger type of story to get us noticed? Mm-hmm. No, you don't have to climb Mount Everest. Because guess what? The customer probably doesn't care about climbing Mount Everest. They just want their problem solved. So the more relatable the character in your story, the more relatable the problem and the emotion of the character, that's what's going to, it's not a magical story. It's magical to them. Yep. That's the key. So yeah, it shouldn't be an unrelatable story, climbing Mount Everest, winning a gold medal. I mean, hey, there's a place for those motivational speakers, but we're talking about building your business. And so it's more the relatability and the emotional shift 
and the result that the customer gets, that they're happy. Yeah. Michael said exactly the same thing. He said, it's actually better off to have a common story that's relatable and you've achieved something that the audience wants to achieve so they can understand, oh, I'm here. I can be there where you are now. So that's, that's awesome. Do you mind, Darren, if we go spiritual for a second? Go right ahead. Okay. Let's talk about God and Mr. Wonderful and the sharks. You know, you referenced the following from uh, the first Corinthians. I'm going to read it. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. And not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Now, that's the end of the quote. I also love the other quote that you speak of, and that is, God doesn't choose the qualified. He qualifies the chosen. So, we agree that success comes in stages, but let me take you back to April 26, 1992 at the Stitches Comedy Club, which we discussed in Boston. Your first laugh on your first comedy show was deemed a failure. And we talked about that first laugh and how you felt it. And when you, when you left, you're like, wow, that I, I got a laugh. But the issue that we face as entrepreneurs is that we're judged by everyone around us who thinks that they're God and they know better. They mock us. They tell us that we're not worthy. They discourage us. And the sad part is that most of these people are usually the ones we look up to, right? The ones that hold us back. Why do we so often allow other people to tell us what success is and then believe them at their word? Uh, that's a great question. I wish I had a great answer. I believe it is a truth that you're speaking of. The why, I don't know, but I do believe it's the truth. And like when I walked off stage and I had gotten that laugh, I looked at it differently. I didn't care that everyone thought I bombed. I wasn't comparing myself. I was told I can't do this, and I did. Even though it was an accident, I'll just make more accidents. So, yeah, and, and prayer and God is definitely, you know, part of my journey, and it's becoming more and more a part of my journey. Uh, I've had my moments of ego. I will divulge. Um, but, you know, God has a way of humbling us when we do that. Uh, but I, I'm actually now my big goal is I'm working on a movie script that I'm trying to sell to Hollywood that I've been working on for nine years. And it's nice. based on that Corinthians quote that you said, where I'm truly believe I was the least likely person to ever become a comedian or a speaker, you know, quiet, shy, introvert, naive, unfunny. I had everything against me, but I also knew that when I did win, I had a responsibility to not only point to him who did it through me, um, but also to then teach others and, and be that example. You know, I had a young man named Rory Vaden on my podcast, and he said something brilliant. He said, you are uniquely qualified to help the person you used to be. Yep. 
And Love I that. think it's just powerful. And so I have that responsibility to help other quiet, shy, naive, unfunny people to, to know that they can do it. And again, well-meaning people trained the dream out of us. And as a, since I choose this as an inspirational, motivational speaker and trainer of speakers and storytellers, I just, I know it's what I'm supposed to do. And it's because of my story, because of my past, I'm uniquely qualified to teach that. So I stay in my lane. If I get a call for leadership, I'm like, I don't teach leadership. I can teach leaders how to tell better stories. That's my lane. You want me to talk about how to be a great leader? I don't know. I haven't done that. So why would I talk about it? Um, But yeah, God's been a big part of everything I do. And when I forget, he reminds me. And and is God your why? Is it more of a hey, Brian Tracy and other mentors affected and impacted my life so much that I now want to affect somebody's life? Or is it, I was bullied as a kid, I was a failure as a kid, and I never want anybody else to be a failure again? Well, for me personally, I believe it's twofold, is that eight-year-old kid who embarrassed himself at the dinner table, I think it's my responsibility to share my story, to help other people um, open up that eight-year-old dreamer that's still whispering them, but they keep smushing it down. And I, I think that's the, the Nineveh that God put on my heart that I run away from, but I keep going back to because I know that's my responsibility. So it's kind of twofold. My why is for that eight-year-old dreamer inside of people, but I believe it's God-ordained responsibility. I love what you're saying. It's just such a, so many ahas. And I think that the listeners are going to get a lot out of it. And you know, when when you accepted your award for the 2001 World Champion of Public Speaking, you told the, the audience that your dad once said, I don't care what you want to do, just be the best. Mm. And after meeting you and learning about your journey, I can say you are the best at what you do. You know what I'm most grateful for? What's I'm most grateful for the fact that you took that next step mm. so many years back. The fact that you were willing to fall on your face and then get up just a little bit further than you were and do it all over again and again, because that's why you're here today with the seven hatters and hopefully helping them take that next step and fall. So congrats on that. Thanks. Yeah. I always say, uh, God didn't give me the gift of laughter. He gave me the persistence to learn how, I mean, When I considered, am I going all in with this comedy thing before I found speaking, I thought about, I was like, you know, growing up, every kid or many kids dream of being professional athletes. But when I thought about it, I was kind of like Rudy. I wasn't big enough to even be a starter in high school, never mind college. And so I wasn't big enough, smart enough, whatever. But I thought about, I'm like, you know, the average professional athlete, you know, four or five years average uh, as a career and then what? Like that, like, you know, a lot of them find sports casting, find that other dream, family. No, like I'm just saying for me. And when I thought about comedy, I, I realized George Burns was like a hundred <laughs> years old when he passed. And he was still doing comedy. I'm like, I don't care if it takes me 10 or 20 years. I'm gonna figure it out. Yeah. I'm just gonna persist my way because that was the one gift I had was persistence, which I believe was nurtured in my subway days when I was working 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. Yeah. It was training. And persistence is the one skill that so many lack. 
and why they don't achieve their dreams. You know, and I think that's the consistency and the and and that persistence to to get up every day and get punched in the face and and get up again. So I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? I had to stop being insecure. I had to stop listening to my family member who told me I was crazy, I was stupid, that's not for you. And instead of trying to win them over and impress them, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, we want to impress our dads or we want to be validated by our dads. And I had to let go of that and realize it's much more important, number one, to stay in the right path with God. And then number two, to serve the audience. And if they're laughing, it doesn't matter if other people don't think I'm funny. Everyone has their audience. So I had to have that self-belief and I still have doubt once in a while. I'm not going to shy, shy away when I, when I raise my fee as a keynote speaker. Mm-hmm. Oh, are they going to, you know, it, it's inside me. So I have to surround myself like Jim Rohn's top five with the right top five and mastermind and listen to them and know they're going to tell me the truth when I'm getting in my own way, my, my ego and my critic. So self-reliance, 100% responsibility, I think is probably the biggest one. So as my saying, I am the CEO of my dream. Oh, I love that. You can delegate a lot of things. You can hire, you can fire, you can surround yourself by different people. But the one thing you can't delegate is your dream. As Alper said, tweetable moment. <laughs> so uh, tell the seven hatters, how do, how do they find you? What are you working on? I know you have books. I, you might be working on a script that you're trying to create a movie for. Uh, you're doing speaking engagements and you're a busy man. So what, where could they find you and what do you want them to seek out? Well, 17 Minutes to Your Dream is my new book. This, it's not even out yet at the time of this recording. This is the copy with all the typos that I got to go through. Uh, 17minutestoyourdream.com. If you wish to be a better speaker, presenter, you can check out stagetimeuniversity.com. And it's funny because in this book, unlike any other book, at the very end, in the last chapter, I said, you know what? Because it's about my strategy, what I took from the world championship and applying it to try and sell a movie to Hollywood, which I have no credibility in. So it's a whole new world. So I talk about the strategy I took from stand-up and speaking and applying it to this new dream. So I haven't sold my script to Hollywood yet, but I'm going to start blogging about what I'm doing every day so people can see my struggle and hopefully be inspired by that. So there you go. Darren, thank you so much for gracing us on The Seven Hats. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. You are an inspiration to so many, including myself. And thank you for all that you do. Thanks for having me. Keep doing what you do. Thank you. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Aaron. Let's end today with the show segment that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. We're entrepreneurs. We wake up in the morning and get punched in the face and we must get up just to get punched in the face again And again, we're the underdog until we're not. We look at success from the outside in, never 
from the inside out. There has never been an overnight success story, no matter what you hear, and there will never be. Each of our heroes was once the inflatable punching bag named Bozo, the one that never stays down long enough to get back up and take the punches all over again. Darren experienced his first ouch, his first huge failure when he sold his subway shop at a loss. And that experience put Darren on a downward spiral towards hitting his bottom, a low that most entrepreneurs faced at least once in their career. But Brian Tracy asked a pivotal question that became the turning point in Darren's life. And that question was, what would you dare to dream if you knew you couldn't fail? And the rest was history. When Darren decided to become a stand-up comedian, he knew that he was about to embark on multiple failures to come. But since he was at his low, he didn't give a shit. In 92, Darren began to try to make people laugh. And in 93, the movie Rudy came out. Rudy was one of my inspirations. I'll never forget how Rudy affected my life as he did for Darren. Persistence, resilience, attitude, discipline, consistency, work ethic, faith, optimism, and hard fucking work is what it takes. And Rudy showed the world that when you get up, despite your disadvantages, you ultimately become the hero in your hero's journey. What would you dare to dream if you knew you couldn't fail? What would you achieve if you never stopped trying? Well, in the movie, despite two years of trying to play one game and never achieving that goal, Rudy was about to quit. And there's a scene where Rudy is approached by the stadium's janitor who tells Rudy that if he gives up, he will regret it for the rest of his life. And that scene goes like this. Hey, hey, what you doing here? Don't you have practice? Not anymore, I quit. Oh. Well, since when are you the quitting kind? I don't know, I just don't see the point anymore. So you didn't make the dress list. There are greater tragedies in the world. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad to prove to everyone prove that I worked- what? That I was somebody. Oh, you are so full of crap. You're five feet knuckle, a hundred and knuckle, and you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. And you're also gonna walk out of here with a degree from the University of Notre Dame. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. And after what you've gone through, if you haven't done that by now, it ain't gonna never happen. Now go on back. Sorry I never got you to see your first game with you. Hell, I've seen too many games in this stadium. I thought you said you never saw a game. I've never seen a game from the stands. You were a player? I rode the bench for two years. Thought I wasn't being played because of my color. I got filled up with a lot of attitude. So I quit. Still not a week goes by, I don't regret it. And I guarantee a week won't go by in your life. You won't regret walking out, letting them get the best of you. 
You hear me clear enough. In this life, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody but yourself. And those words are the reason that Darren is now a world champion of public speaking and a successful entrepreneur who helps thousands of other people realize their dreams. I want to thank Darren once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.